It's uh, great to be here with you this morning again. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And while you're finding Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to give us a little bit of orientation to uh, a sermon series that we're beginning, you know, technically we began last week, but really going to begin in earnest this week, entitled Salt and Light, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, in order to kind of get our uh, background going, we're going to first come and uh, pull the lens out one more time just to kind of give us the broader picture of uh, what the Lord uh, is speaking to us about as a congregation in this season of our life together. So back in uh, at Advent time, we began a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and each of the Gospels comes at the uh, at, at Jesus from a, a different facet, a different perspective. So it's kind of like a, a diamond that you get to see different facets from as you look through the various Gospels. And let me remind you again that when we come to the Gospels, we're not simply coming to sort of some just dry, dusty historical narrative books that we sort of blew the dust off and got out of the shelves and, and, and are looking at. Actually, when we come to the gospel, the, the Bible tells us that the gospel embodies the very power of God himself. His very presence is, is here in the gospels. And so when we come to the gospels, we are not interacting simply with history. We're interacting with a living Lord and Savior. And so I want to really encourage us to have our hearts wide open to receive uh, what he wants to bring to us because it's not simply information. He is always after transformation. So the gospel of Matthew. Now, as we've discovered, there are a couple of key uh, keys to understanding the gospel of Matthew. One of those has to do with this, um, the, the concept of the kingdom of heaven or in the other gospels is spoken of as the kingdom of God. And as you remember, the very first thing that Jesus spoke in Matthew 4.17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he began to preach something that he would continue to preach throughout his ministry was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So can somebody tell me a, a simple definition of repent uh, that we've used several times? So... Turn around. So turn around because the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, you've been following after your own kingdom for a long time, and now it is time for you to turn around and pledge your allegiance to his kingdom. I want to tell you a story to kind of introduce this whole concept and even what we're going to be sharing about here this morning. It's from uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and it's a parable about, well, it's a parable about obedience. So just listen to this carefully. I want you to have this picture in your heart. Once upon a time, there was a rich man who brought from abroad and at an, bought from abroad at an exorbitant price a team of faultless and excellent horses, which he wanted for his own pleasure and the pleasure of driving them himself. A year or two passed by, and if anyone who had known these horses in earlier days now saw them driven by their owner, he would not be able to recognize them. 
Their eyes had become dull and drowsy. Their pace had no carriage and consistency. They could bear nothing. They could endure nothing. The rich man could hardly drive them four miles without having to stop on the way. And sometimes they came to a standstill just when he was driving his best. Moreover, they had acquired all sorts of quirks and bad habits. Although they, of course, um, got food in abundance, they grew thinner day by day. The rich man called in the king's coachman. He drove them for one month. And at the end of the period, there was no team of horses in the whole land which carried their heads so proudly, whose eyes were so fiery, whose pace was so beautiful. No other team of horses could hold out as they did, running even 30 miles in a stretch without stopping. How did this happen? Well, it's easy to understand. The owner, who was no coachman and merely played the coachman, drove the horses according to the horse's conception of how they should be driven. The royal coachman drove them according to a coachman's conception of driving. Now, this is a picture of human life. When I think of myself and the countless people I've learned to know, I've often said to myself in sadness, here are capacities and powers and possibilities enough, but the driver is lacking. Through the long ages, for generation after generation, we human beings have been driven, if I may so, according to the horse's conception of driving. We have been governed, trained, and educated according to man's conception of what it is to be a man. You see what has come from that. We lack spiritual stature. It follows from this again, that we can endure so little that we impatiently use the means of the moment, impatiently wait to see instantaneous rewards for our labors, which for this very reason become of secondary importance. We have driven ourselves according to our own conception of horsemanship rather than his conception of horsemanship. So when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's saying, turn around from driving the horses of your life your own way and turn to me and allow me so that, not because I want to bind you all up, but because I want to release the fullness of potential that I have for you and in you. Do you get that? All right, let's go on. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming this good news of the kingdom, that I have good news for you in this kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So what Jesus was doing here was the king is proclaiming and demonstrating the reality of his kingdom and is inviting others to join him in this new kingdom reality, saying, In my kingdom, I have things to reveal to you, things to show you that will release in you the fullness of potential of life, life to the full. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and life to the full. Now, when we turn to Matthew chapter 5, which is where we are now, we begin our study of what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with the first couple of verses here. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I want to remind you three things just in those first couple of verses that give us context now for the Sermon on the Mount. So the context of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. The context now for 
the Sermon on the Mount is as such. First of all, Jesus is going to teach with authority. When he goes up and sits down on the mountainside, he is actually demonstrating he's coming into the posture of one who is going to teach with authority. Now, interestingly enough, even in the passage we're going to look at today, it says in Matthew 5, 18, I tell you the truth. Or in some of your translations, the older translations, it's verily, verily, I say unto you. And you always remember, what, what does verily mean? Well, verily is from the Latin what? Veritas, which is the Latin for truth. Truly, truly, I'm going to tell you the truth. Now here, this is different from any other teacher in that time. In fact, probably different than any other teacher in all of the ages. Jesus proclaims with absolute authority, says, I am going to tell you the truth. 31 times alone in Matthew, another 25 times in John, several times in the other Gospels as well. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the truth. Now at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, when you get all the way to Matthew chapter 7, 28, 29a, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. He didn't teach like all of the other teachers taught. He taught as one who had authority. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to recognize, first of all, right up front, that Jesus is teaching us with authority. Secondly, intimacy. His disciples came to him. His disciples came to him. In just earlier in Matthew 4, he says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we need to recognize that this isn't sort of Jesus isn't, um, he's not giving a webinar, all right? The disciples weren't taking a class online. They are right there with him. There is relationship going on. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we need to recognize that Jesus is looking for intimacy, looking for relationship within us. With us, he is not. We're not simply coming again to some text that is disembodied text. We're coming to enfleshed text, which is Jesus Himself. Do you get this? Hello, yes? You guys are really quiet this morning. All right, so this is critical for understanding this because we need to hear it from the context of Jesus interacting with us. He's saying, follow me. And finally, they're doing it, they came together. There's this community aspect to this. And immediately they left, and just follow, after the come follow me in 422, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They came together in community to Jesus. We come together as a community to Jesus. One of the beautiful things we've been discovering and as we did Lent together in small group, Lenten small groups and in our mosaic groups and in our connect groups and different one-on-one opportunities is the absolute importance of coming to Jesus in community. Coming to him in community. All right. Let's go on now. Let me ask you this. 
is this simply a disembodied group of sayings that are in, and disconnected, I should say, disconnected group of sayings that Jesus, you know, that they found? Or, or is this actually, is there an actual message that is coherent here that, that has something and is building towards something? I would say the latter. I think sometimes, in fact, if you study the Sermon on the Mount and simply uh, pick and choose pieces out of it without recognizing the overarching uh, thematic elements and the connection between those elements, you will do violence to the message itself. We need to understand the broad perspective and broad scope of this message. Now, you know, if we were to take a poll this morning and I would ask you, who is the smartest person in the world, we'd get a lot of different answers. You might answer Einstein, or um, you might answer, I don't know who, uh, Bill Gates, or um, uh, maybe you'd answer Tom, A-Strike, I don't know. You'd come up with the most brilliant people in the world. You'd, 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 you'd think of people around you that are really super smart. But you know, a lot of times when people come to Jesus, we think of Jesus as a lot of things, but sometimes we don't think of Jesus as smart. I don't know why. Isn't that true? You just don't think of him, I mean, you know, that's not the first word that leaps to mind when you think about Jesus. But let's understand here, Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is the most brilliant man that ever walked the face of the earth. And so when we come to this passage, we need to understand that this is a brilliantly crafted discourse which clarifies the true nature of the kingdom into which his followers are being invited. This is not an idealistic picture of a then-and-there kingdom, but rather a realistic, concrete illustration of life in the here-and-now kingdom. Sometimes this passage, and in certain, maybe even in some of, you know, if you've got a particular type of reference Bible that, that uh, has dispensations and different things like that and all of that kind of teaching, sometimes the Sermon on the Mount is placed somewhere off in the millennial realm. It's something that will happen when the king comes back and reigns in his millennial reign. But this is not a then and there message. This is a here and now message for us. And so we need to receive it and hear it as such. Okay. So this discourse deals with two major questions that humanity always faces. The first question is how to be blessed. What does a life look like that is marked by true well-being? Well, the Beatitudes, which we've just been studying through Lent in verses 3 to 12 of Matthew 5, give us an understanding of what this blessed life looks like, what well-being looks like in the kingdom of God. It looks like poor in spirit. It looks like mourning. It looks like meekness. It looks like hungering and thirsting. It looks like mercy. It looks like pure in heart. It looks like peacemakers. It looks like persecution. This is what it means to be blessed. The second question that we often find ourselves wrestling with is how to be good. What does a life look like that is marked by true goodness? And that's what gets unpacked from verse 17 all the way through the end of the discourse in 727. 
What does a life look like that is marked by true goodness? So we're going to be unpacking that and discovering that together for the next several months. We're going to be in this study through July as we discover what it means to be good. And then the hinge passage, which we looked at last week on Easter Sunday, and I encourage you, you can go to the website, you can go to the back and get a CD and get PowerPoints on this. We're the salt of the earth and the earth and the light of the world. This describes both who we are as blessed and what we're to do in our goodness. And so that's why over the next several months, we're going to be studying what it means to be salt and light, what it means to be truly good and blessed in a world that is in desperate need of that message penetrating into the darkness, disorientation, and disintegration around us. All right, so the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you got your Bible, so Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to give a disclaimer right up front. I'm just going to tell you this is one of the most challenging passages to preach. This was, I mean, it was a pitched wrestling match this week for me to kind of get this into a way that, first of all, that I was fully able to understand, embrace what it was that the Word was saying, and then be able to bring something to you. So I'm going to give you an upfront, again, disclaimer. This is going to be a fairly theological message, and we're going to be, look, I need to set the foundation so that in the weeks to come, Andrew's going to be speaking next year, next year, next week, um, by the end of the message, it might feel like next year. No. Um, but next week, uh, he's going to be sharing um, a message about uh, specifically around anger. And we're going to begin to, to start to, to get very practical. But I need to set the stage for it this week. And so, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody goes, ooh. Ooh. (laughs) Mmm. All right. So, let's try to unpack this in a way that will help us practically when we begin to unfold the rest of the, 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 the teaching that Jesus gives here in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to have this foundation. All right, so I've entitled the message Fulfilled because I would uh, recommend to you that the key word in the entire passage is found in verse 17. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And if we don't understand fulfill, we're not going to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so... First of all, I want to set the objective. I want to set the goal. What is the goal? Because if you, know, if you don't have a goal, well, you're bound to miss it. Okay, so because you know, if you don't know what it is that you're aiming at, 
How do you know? I mean, what, what kind of trajectory do you have for your life or for anything? So you have to have a purpose. You have to have a goal. You have to have an objective. You have to have something that you are working towards. All right? So at the end of verse 20, we get the focus, the place that we're seeking to go as a people. The reason that we want to be blessed, the reason that we want to be good is why? Because we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the goal that we are after, is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes? Can somebody say amen, please? Does that sound like the right goal? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Turn around and enter into the kingdom. So we're talking about how do we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I would submit to you that the answer that Jesus brings here and is found throughout consistently through his teachings is to submit to the rule and reign of the king because that's what this kingdom is about. His kingdom is about his rule and reign. Submit to that in the here and now in order to experience the fullness of his life both now and forever. In fact, one of the most known, well-known verses, the one that's held up at all sporting events because people even in this day and age still have some vague recollection of what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So Jesus came. His whole mission here on earth was to invite people into a life that they did not yet have. And it was the life of the kingdom of God. And it's only through submitting to the king through surrendering our lives to him, that we will enter into the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And that life, that eternal life, John tells us this is eternal life, to know him and the one who sent him. Eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you actually begin to live, which is when you come to the king. Okay? So I'm trying to clarify misconceptions that we have. Because we're always thinking about the kingdom of heaven as something there, but it's here. We're always thinking about eternal life as something then, but it's now. All right. Now, how do we do this? Well, let's come back to the text. We have the law and the prophets. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when Jesus uses the law or the prophets... There were three portions of the Old Testament that were understood as the Old Testament. There was the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those were the Old Testament. All right? So the law had to do with the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, the judicial laws, the legislative law, and the ceremonial laws, the laws regarding worship. So when we're talking about the law, when we go back into the Old Testament, we see these, all these kinds of laws unfolding in the Old Testament, all right? It's, but, but I love this definition of the law as well. The law is not, again, simply something disconnected and disembodied. It's actually a revelation of God's inner thoughts, how he thinks about how the world should be ordered, how it works, how it will work best for human beings, okay? As it's revealed to the people of Israel in the Old Testament in specific, all right? Now, The prophets 
are the ones who interpret and apply the law of God. Constantly, I mean, I'm reading through Jeremiah right now, and he's constantly calling them back, constantly reminding them of the ways in which they are no longer following or applying the law of God. And prophecy has both a foretelling, this is how it is, and a foretelling element. So if you read the Old Testament prophets, there are times when they're simply saying, guys, this is how it is, and it is a mess. And there's other times where he is foretelling and saying, this is how it is going to be. Sometimes it's foretelling, this is how it's going to be if you don't turn around. And this, sometimes he's foretelling, this is how it's going to be after you have turned around. We heard about that this morning in Isaiah 61. That was a foretelling message. This is what's going to look like. All right? Now, if you look at the text carefully, and you ask the question, did Jesus come to abolish, which is in the Greek, kataleo, or dismantle or destroy the word of the law and the prophets? No, he did not. There are people who teach in opposition, actually, to what I believe Jesus says here very clearly. They teach that you really don't need the Old Testament at all. You can just cut your Bible in, well, take two-thirds out and keep the one-third, and all will be good because all we really need is Jesus. We don't need all that Old Testament stuff because, you know, that was the Old Testament. Now we're living in the New Testament. So we don't need the Old anymore. Well, the fact of the matter is, one-sixth of the Sermon on the Mount, 15 out of the 92 verses that we have here, are devoted to emphasizing the importance of actually doing what the law says. All right, I'm not getting many amens because everybody's trying to wrestle this through. All right, that's okay. We're not done yet, so just keep wrestling with me, all right? But we've got to deal with the text. We've got to deal with what Jesus is saying here. All right? So, did he come to abolish? Because that was what people were saying. I mean, they were following Jesus around, and he was reinterpreting stuff like Sabbath and he, you know, he's reinterpreting all of these things, and he's in this constant, and Andrew's going to talk about this much more next week, about, you know, Jesus and the Pharisees, and so he's going to give some more context. So hang in there, and next week you're going to get more, all right? But, so there's all these things, but, but his followers were starting to think, hey, man, the law, that is so old school. That is so yesterday. We get to do whatever we want. Woo! Freedom! Right? That's the way the, you know, the rap on Jesus was. You're just trying to destroy. And Jesus says very clearly, did I come to destroy the law? No. I'm not abolishing it. I'm not dis- dismantling it. All right. So here we come to our word that's critical to our understanding. Jesus fulfills. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Now, this is where we've got to dig deep. And I don't even know that I'm going to go deep enough today, but you've got to dig with me and keep on digging. The fulfills comes from the Greek word plero. Plero. And it means to complete, to bring to its desired and destined end. Now, I'm not going to put this scripture up there, but I would really like you to turn there to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. So if you've got a Bible, pick it up in front of you. It's about that much into. So it's about halfway into the Bible or a little more. 
Jeremiah 31. And again, this is going to get unpacked more in length next week. Andrew's going to do some more work here in Jeremiah 31. But I want to introduce you to it this morning because it's a critical passage. And I didn't put it up on the board because I actually want you to look, maybe find it, and then mark it in your Bible. This is critical to understanding this concept of fulfilling. The time is coming, declares the Lord. Verse 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. I'm in Jeremiah 31 now, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. Listen. I'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I've used this phrase multiple times through our studies so far, and I'm going to continue to use it. We need to understand that the kingdom of God is upside down and it's inside out. It messes with all of our conceptions. Just when you think you've got it figured out, Jesus comes along and turns it upside down or turns it inside out. So this is one of those inside out moments when it's, he talks about fulfilling the law. In Matthew 11, careful students will look at this and and, and recognize what he says here. He says this a little later in Matthew. Jesus says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that he is the Elijah who was to come, whoever has ears, let him hear. In other words, all of this in the Old Testament was moving in a trajectory towards something. We can't cut off the root that was there, but we recognize that the root, that the things were going somewhere, that the beginnings had a trajectory towards, and John the Baptist, who comes in the spirit of Elijah, is speaking towards the one who was to come, who would fulfill the fullness of the law. So here is what I have as a takeaway from this. Far from wanting to abolish or set aside the law and the prophets, Jesus brings into full being that which they have pointed towards, carrying them into a new era of fulfillment. Jesus does not make us choose between the so-called external and institutional laws and the internal and authentic spirit. Rather, he would have us find the spirit deep in the laws going to the source from which they came. So he's calling us to dig deeper, to look past some of... Now, you see that the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, well, we'll get to them in a moment, but they're the ones, you know, they were building fences around. They were, they were, they were getting entangled in all of the laws, and they're doing, trying to do all of the external things, but missing the inside reality, the interior reality of that. So they were completely missing the point of the law. But Jesus says, I'm coming to fulfill that in us. All right. 
And then he says, unless, this is the one that just, I tell you, unless, verse 20, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, let's understand, first of all, what righteousness means. Righteousness, this is another key word along with fulfill. The other key word that you're going to come back to over and over and over again in this study is righteousness. Dekayasune. All right, I'm sure I didn't say that right, but Andrew will get that right next week. Okay. One way of defining righteousness is what there is, what it is about a person that makes him or her really right and good. Or another way of defining it is simply pleasing God through inner goodness. So righteousness is pleasing God through true inner goodness. Pleasing God through true inner goodness. That's a great, actually true inner goodness is a great definition of what righteousness is. It's true inner goodness. So that's righteousness. Well, the surpassing. Surpassing is exceeding the true inner goodness of the scribes or the legalists, the ones who worked out the rules and regulations of the law, and the Pharisees, the pietists, the one who sought diligently to keep all the rules and regulations of the law. Have you ever had the experience of, I, I mean, I have. I've been in ministry 30 plus years now, of people who were modern day scribes and Pharisees. I've met them, I've interacted with them, I've had lots of opportunity to spend time with those who are the legalists, the ones who, who, who want to write the laws, okay, and the ones, the pietists, the ones who keep the law better than, any, than anyone else. Now, in the crowds that Jesus is talking to, certainly there were pietists and legalists there. There were scribes and Pharisees. And he's saying to this crowd of people who are on the mountainside, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody went, ooh, what? How are we supposed to do that? Have you ever watched these guys? They'll walk around with their eyes closed so that they won't look at a woman and perhaps lust. So they just close their eyes and they bump in and scrape into things. And they got all these obscure ways of keeping Sabbath and what you can do and what you can't do. And now you're telling us, Jesus, we have to surpass them? Really? I love how Jesus puts us on the horns of a dilemma. You know, and we've got to wrestle. I mean, you know, this is why it, it takes some effort, people, <laughs> to follow Jesus. I mean, you know, remember there were times when everybody left him because they said, man, your teachings are just too hard. <laughs> right? We're just, we're done. We just can't keep up. So, let's close right here. Does this sound like a good place? Let's leave us in the horns, all right? Well, so, well, again, I've been wrestling this through. So here's the question. Are we to set aside or teach against the law and the prophets? Do we just set them aside or do we teach against them? No. When we spur the law and the prophets, we're saying that God has no right to meddle in our human lives, yet he claims to own our very being. You see, 
There's a lot of reinterpretation going on right now. And, you know, there has been for 2,000 years. People reinterpreting, you know, well, it doesn't really say that. No, you know, and, and so if you set aside what God has, has taught, well, we can't, you know, the Ten Commandments, that's so much, you know, again, that's just old school, that's old news. Yeah, they're not really rules anymore. Famous Pirates of the Caribbean. We don't think of them as rules. We think of them as guidelines. Okay. So, so now we don't really need the... We can create our own set of rules. But, but if we do that, then what we're really saying is we're the ones... God, you don't have the right to, to say these things, so therefore we're the ones that have the right to make up our own rules, right? We can come up with our own. But we forget... This fact that, that he claims to own our very being, and if he owns our very being, you know, the one who rules gets to make the rules. That's, that's the issue of rulership. All right? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You're bought with a price. You are not your own. God thinks he owns you because he does. Wow, wait a minute. This is getting really hard. All right, so let's try to work our way through the horns of the dilemma. We're almost done. I think it's just two more slides, so we're almost there. See, we have to adjust our attention. If we're going to really grab hold of this, we have to move from how to who. Almost every major religion, you've heard me say this a thousand times, has to, is interested in the how. How do I make myself righteous before God? How do I make myself acceptable to him? What do I have to do? Sophia was talking about the, the, the folks who are, are following the Muslim religion all kneeling down right there, in the, um, right there in the mall or wherever it was that you were, and all of the folks. Well, well, they're very interested in how do I get to God? Well, if I do this and if I pray these five times a day and I follow the, these kinds of sets of rules and regulations, and if I'm Jewish, I follow these, and if I'm a Hindu, it's those, and if I'm Buddhist, I'm that, and whatever it is, and if I'm animist, I have to do these certain sacrifices or these kinds of things. Everything has to do with how can I make myself acceptable to God? But the point now that we need to come to as we bring this into a close here this morning is this, from the objective which, let me remind you, we're going someplace, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And the question of how I'm doing that, that's the question on the crowd's mind. That's why they're following after Jesus. He's teaching with authority like nobody else has taught. So maybe we can listen to him and find out how it is that we can enter the kingdom of God and the shift that needs to happen here and we're going to see throughout now the coming weeks is it shifts from how to who. Jesus is the living law and prophet. That's what it means when it says that he has fulfilled. He is the living. The law is the course of righteousness. Jesus is the source of righteousness. So here's how we move ourselves through. From the 
we're, we're from the how of the course, we come to the who of the source. Then they asked him, John 6, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So the question is, can we abandon and abolish and set aside the law? No. The other question is, are we enslaved to the law? No. For the kingdom of heaven is not a reward for having kept the law meticulously. Because when he's saying surpassing, he doesn't mean keep it more meticulously than the pietists and the legalists because you ain't going to be able to do that anyway. That's not the point. And he's, that's going to unfold very clearly as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. What he's saying is it only will happen through fully surrendering and submitting to me, the King, Jesus. Listen to this. God is interested in loyalty, not legalism. Motivated motivated by love and not law. So as Augustine once wrote, love God with all your heart and then do whatever you please. Love God with all of your heart and then do whatever you please. Because you will please, your pleasing will flow out of that place of love of God. So over the next months, we're going to be unpacking this incredible discourse of Jesus's, And it's got some amazing things that we're going to discover together. But we need to lay this foundation this morning. And again, I just want to come back for a moment to just remind you of the course and the source. And they're not in competition with each other, but they definitely interact with one another. And we don't simply set aside one, but as we're going to see, Jesus goes beyond the externals and he goes right to the heart of things, to the inside out. And so this morning we're going to close by singing a song that reflects this reality, and encourages us into that inside out. Uh, Here we go. To love you from the inside out. This is the call of God in our lives, in this upside down, inside out kingdom of God. How can he take and turn inside out? Jesus, dig deeper, dig beyond the, you know, it isn't just about having your devotions in the morning. It's not just simply about coming to worship on Sundays. It's not simply about this, that, or the other. It is about relationship and intimacy with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's coming together in community and wrestling through these things and discovering the very heart of God. And as we discover his heart and his love for us and our love for him, he begins to transform us. All right. So I gave you warning. This was a heavily theological message this morning. So thank you for staying with me. Young people, I know. This is like, okay, what's, where are we at? What are we talking about? I want to bring it back. Can we set aside the law? No. Are we enslaved by the law? No. 
we come to Jesus and we receive from him the source of righteousness and the only way that your righteousness is going to surpass is when you come into relationship with Jesus, when you come to the end of yourself and say, I can't do this anymore. I've tried. So this whole message, Sermon on the Mount, is not about gritting your teeth and trying harder. You know, that was the same thing with the Beatitudes. It wasn't about that. It's, you're on the right course. I want you to keep going, and I'm going to show you the course. I'm going to show you because I'm the source. I'm going to live this out before you, and I'm going to reveal to you the way to enter into this kingdom through me, Jesus. Let's stand together. Jesus, can we just open our hearts right now? Lord, we just, we just recognize and acknowledge that <clears throat> this is really deep and uh, very rigorous things that you are inviting us into and calling us to. And Lord, in and of ourselves, we, just, we don't have it. But Lord, in you, you can change and help us. And so... We're asking you to help us today to come and and do this transformation of our souls from the inside out, Lord. We've been like that team of horses. We've done it on our own, and, and it's amounted to nothing. But God, we need you to train us. We need you to teach us. We need you to show us. We need you to help us, Lord God, to live in the fullness, God, of you and of your heart and of your truth. So come, work in us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Oh, God, let Jesus, from the inside out, our soul cries out to you, cries out to you for life, cries out for you for righteousness, cries out for you for truth, cries out for you for hope, cries out for you for mercy, cries out for you for comfort, cries out for you for help. Come, transform us, God, that we might be made worthy of you for your glory. And now with hands open, I pray that you would be filled afresh this very day with the immeasurable love of God the Father, with the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength, comfort, power, and hope of the Holy Spirit to be with you and yours as you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations. Go with the banner of his favor over your lives. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love and goodness and mercy will chase you down every day of your life. I bless you, people of God. In the name of Jesus, go in his grace. Go in his goodness. Go with his blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.